0: amen we are blessed today to have joe johnson preaching god's word to us joe uh, began this year in his new calling as the ruf director uh, here at mississippi state so we're delighted to welcome him to our community to first presbyterian church and certainly uh, to his ministry at mississippi state university he's just getting settled in Uh, joe's wife april and their children Uh, Anna, Anna, five, and Sam, or Samuel, who's two, are getting used to things, too. And Anna's already been uh, and set through eight and a half innings of a baseball game, uh, which is really impressive for a five-year-old girl at Mississippi State. Uh, Joe has not yet brought um, Sam to any games because he doesn't want the games to be delayed by disruption right now. So... Um, Birmingham Southern, R-U-F at Birmingham Southern, uh, before uh, the move here to Mississippi State. Um, he's not really, he's really an Atlantan, uh, but then the family moved to South Carolina. Uh, so he went to Northside in Atlanta through 11th grade. You changed, is that right? In, before, senior in before senior year in high school. So you know this guy's already, God has grown him up to, to make adjustments. That was a big adjustment to move to South Carolina. Um, he's a Gamecock, uh, University of South Carolina. So uh, he's, he's in a better mood. You know, they swept Florida uh, this, after being swept, I think, the previous <laughs> weekend. So anyway, things go up and down in the SEC, you know, the way that works. Uh, Joe, we welcome you, and we're delighted to have you preaching for us today.
1: Good afternoon. Um, the only reason my five-year-old sat through eight innings, though, is uh, she was just waiting to ring the cowbell again. That's all she just, Dad, can I ring the cowbell now? Um, so that, that helps kids. But we're gonna be in Mark chapter 14 uh, today, if you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 14. And it is really good to be here. Um, yeah, we moved here in December to start with RUF. Here is the campus minister, and um uh, I got to know Reed pretty quickly after after moving here. I think right after I moved here, I got coffee and got to know Martin over this past week or so and um, drive past your church every day because I live at 929 and, um, and hang out with students there and um, have a number of friends in this congregation, and so it's good to be here. Uh, RUF, we really do see uh, the need for students to be in healthy churches. And it seems to me, new as a campus minister, that RUF, we're the PCA's ministry. We're kind of based out of grace, but our students go to grace, redeemer, and here. And I wanna keep that up. And I'm coming in your name too to the campus. I want students involved in churches that love Jesus, that love college students, and that's your reputation. And so I'm glad to be here and to get to know y'all better. But I'm also here to preach. And so Mark 14 is where we're gonna be. And looking at um, Jesus praying in a garden, uh, before he dies. I'm, I'm skipping ahead. I asked permission for Martin for this. I'm skipping ahead in Holy Week. It's Holy Tuesday. I'm skipping towards the later part of this week, so I'm kind of cheating. But I want to look at this scene that a lot of commentators say is the most sacred and solemn scene in all of scripture. is Jesus praying, his disciples sleeping, him in agony before he goes to the cross on behalf of his people. And so I want to look a little bit at Jesus's suffering. I know that's some, some what y'all have been talking about on Sunday morning. I hope I'm not making it too much, but I want to look at this scene and see the love of Jesus for his people. And so let's uh, read it together. Mark 14, starting in verse 32. This is God's word. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them, his disciples, sleeping. And he said "Peter, to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. And the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came back and found them sleeping. For their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Let us get going. My betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My dad retired a couple years ago. And um, and as he was retiring, I was entering into my career. It's calling, pastoral calling, but I was entering into full-time work with young kids. And so uh, as my dad was entering into a great season of going to the beach and not having work to do, I was entering into a season of just busyness. And in the first couple of years of my ministry, anxiety that I'd never faced before came into my life. Uh, disappointment, major disappointment. Um, that seminary really didn't prepare me for and uh, just a hard season and I remember going to my dad and asking did you ever go through seasons like this in your job he was not a pastor he was an accountant for 38 years and I asked did you ever go through this and he laughed when I asked him he said Joe I was never not in that season 38 years of being an accountant I never told you I don't like being an accountant 38 years of doing a job that he didn't like to do. He hated it. And then also, he, he told me this. I'd never heard this before. That for a lot of years, he didn't know if his job was going to exist the next year. Uh, companies that would buy companies that would buy divisions that would transfer him. And he, we moved uh, five times growing up. And I, I never knew that. That there were years where he wondered, I might not have a job next year. And there were moments where he was put in ethical positions of, are you going to do good accounting? or Are you going to do what's good for the company? And he hated it. He was always at the guy. He was the controller that had to point out errors and faults. And so there were seasons where he went on antidepressants. I didn't know that. There were seasons that he was seeing counselors. I didn't know that. And as he was telling me these things, I was thinking about my childhood. All I remember about my dad is that he always wanted to play catch in the yard. He always wanted to play tennis. He was always on me about my grades. The yard was never cut good enough, and I had to go do it again. Right? He was always asking me about school. It just, he was just a good dad. I don't remember him ever talking about work. I remember some financial stress in the family. I remember some times we would come home in a mood, but I don't remember him ever saying, like, I'm not happy at work. And so when he was telling me those things, I was just thinking, like, my dad's my hero. That's incredible to not bring that kind of stuff home on the family. I feel like I've already failed at that in my first five years of being a dad, to not bring that home. But where my respect blew through the roof for my dad was when he actually let me in on the suffering that he went through all those years. Where he actually showed me, like, this is how much I love my family. I went through 38 grueling years of a career to take care of y'all. I went through years of worry but not letting you know it. I went through years of suffering because I love you. It was actually when he told me the suffering that I saw the extent of my father's love to me and my family. When we look at this scene, this small scene, and I can't go through all of it, and obviously I can't go through all of the the road to the cross from here, but in this small scene, what Jesus does is he lets his disciples in on the suffering that he's about to take. And they actually get a pretty vivid engraved picture of Jesus the night before he dies. And actually, as Christians, we look at this, and I don't know how it comes across to you, this is sort of jarring to see our Savior not be stoic. He's scared. He's anxious. He's overwhelmed. His soul was troubled unto death. And when you think about that, that makes Christianity unique among all the world religions. If you think about other religious leaders of the day, of, of, of the whole world, we see Buddha, who died at 80, surrounded by his followers, a raging success. We see uh, Confucius died at 72 in his own hometown, surrounded by his followers. Muhammad died blissfully in the arms of his wife. And here we find Jesus, who is the gospel. Christianity is not about a system of doctrine. It's about a person, and this is the person. And we see him here, not peaceful, not at rest, actually overwhelmed with fear of what's about to happen. And what do we do with that? I think it's a little bit like me and my dad that we actually see the suffering that he was willing to take for his people. That his suffering shows us his love for his church, for his bride. And so I just want to talk just a little bit, for a time left, about Jesus' suffering. And just three things as we kind of walk through this text. I want to see first his emotions, what he's feeling right here. And then his request, and then his rejection. So as we walk through that, feelings, emotions... A request rejection. So first is emotions. Let me set the scene here just a little bit because we're kind of plopping in. Uh, this is after Jesus broke bread with his disciples at the last supper, Passover meal with the disciples. And then he leads them to a garden outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem would be packed right now, be very busy, very loud. And so he brings them to this peaceful place in order to pray. Jesus is always going off to pray. This is a little bit different though. That he brings his disciples with him, then goes further into the garden to bring his three most innermost circle disciples with him. And then he asks something strange. He asks them to watch. Now they fall asleep. I'm going to get back to that in a second. But he asks them to watch. And you think at first he's saying, watch, look out, protect us to see if anyone's coming. But we know that's not what he's asking. Because he knows people are coming. He tells them. He's in full control of this situation, and actually when they do come and Peter lashes out to defend Jesus, uh, Jesus rebukes them. So what is he asking them to watch? I think Jesus is inviting them to watch him, to watch him pray, hear me pray, see me. Because in this solemn and sacred moment, we see Jesus going through a lot. We see verse 33, the text tells us he's greatly distressed and troubled. Verse 34, he tells them that his soul is sorrowful to the point of death. That we've seen Jesus emotional before. He wept over his friend who died before he raised him from the dead. But we've never seen Jesus like this. But what is going on in this scene then? What's going through Jesus' mind? Why is he sorrowful to the point of death? Well, some commentators, J.I. Packer being among them, actually thinks this may be the moment that the sins of the people were laid upon Jesus. That he was beginning the suffering that he was going to take for his people. And so what was he inviting the disciples to see? And what are we invited to see in this picture? The beginning of the cost of our sins. The weight of them. That the agony Jesus was looking down the barrel at was starting to weigh upon him. And that actually is good guilt that we need, that our sins cost something. Our students, my students, and I was like this too, our students, they make a lot of mistakes. They're college students. But typically what I see is guilt doesn't begin to creep in until they see how their failures and mistakes have hurt someone else. If you've ever been a part of an intervention with someone who's addicted to alcohol or something else, the most powerful moment of those interventions is when the person sees that their patterns are hurting other people. Here we begin to see what our sins do to Jesus. They weigh on him as he looks at the cross. He looks at the pain and suffering that's coming both physically and spiritually. And he's sorrowful even to the point of death. Do we see our sins like that? Do we feel the guilt that our Savior became weak and vulnerable and fearful in order to rescue his people, willingly entering into suffering for his bride? That's where Jesus was emotionally, that there is hope in a terrified Savior. But then secondly, I want to look at his request. So Jesus is praying in the garden. His buddies are falling asleep. We're going to get to that in a second. There's three rounds of prayers that he prays. Um, And the reason probably why we don't have the other two rounds of prayers is because the disciples were asleep and didn't hear it. But the first round of prayer is this, at verse 35, if your Bibles are still open. And going a little further into the garden, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. This is... A passage of scripture that I wonder, if you had no context of Christianity, if you were just coming in trying to figure out what was going on, this would confuse you a little bit. That Jesus, the night before he dies, actually asks, is there any other way we can do this? Can this cup pass for me? I don't want to go through what I'm about to go through. And I think this teaches us a couple things. The first thing it teaches us is a little bit of how to pray. That we are actually allowed to pray to God, I don't want to go where you're taking me. Is there any other way? We are allowed to pray for things to go away. We're allowed to pray for this pandemic to go away. We're allowed to pray for our suffering. God, take this from me. I don't want to do this. But then we see Jesus say, but not my will, but yours, Father. Meaning that prayer is not us trying to bend God's will to us. Prayer is actually bending our will to God's. To see that wherever he takes us, it is actually for his glory and our good. But then I think the second thing this teaches us, Jesus' request here for this cup to pass, is that the cross was the only way. It was plan A, and there was no plan B. That he asked the sovereign God, the sovereign father, if there is any other way, can we do it? But not my will but yours, and then he willingly goes to the cross. Why is the cross the only way? When I was at Birmingham Southern College, small school. If you're familiar with Millsaps and Jackson, it's a lot like Millsaps, the Millsaps of Birmingham. And not a ton of Christians at the school, a lot of non-church backgrounds. And I remember a student asking me, like Joe, you talk about sin a lot. But if God is so sovereign, why can't he just like wipe it? Why can't he just forget it? Like he sets the rules. Why can't he just say, Okay, I know you sin, but it's not that big of a deal? He's God. Well, I actually think all of us have this desire for justice that we can't deny. That actually the most secular, atheistic worldview we see in the world today is crying out. When things are not right, justice must be served. And for a holy God to be a holy God and a perfect God to be a perfect God, sin must be paid for. It must be made right. The cup has to be drank by someone. But here's the good news of the gospel. I didn't drink the cup. Jesus did that the sin had to be punished and so here's what Jesus did as the son of God the second person of the trinity he goes on the altar of God to accept the full wrath of God for his people to to, to be spiritually destroyed on behalf of his people taking on hell itself that Jesus drinks the cup for us and here's the hope is that because he did that I don't have to And actually, because he does that, I get a seat at the table in the family of God to drink and to celebrate the wedding feast of the Lamb because Jesus does this. But let's not forget his request, if there is any other way, that Jesus enters this dark night of the soul. He enters into the suffering. As Tim Keller says, he loves us into suffering because the Father's will is good. This actually means something about our suffering, too, right? But wherever God leads us, whatever's going on, I'm I'm not an expert in suffering. I haven't gone through as many hard things as numerous people in this room. But can we say in the midst of pain, in the dark night, that the Father's will for us is good? To pray against those things, but then to rest, your will, not mine. His request, but he goes through it anyways. Loves his people into suffering. But then lastly, I want to harp on this for the rest of our time his rejection. So his emotions, his request, but now his rejection. And this isn't exactly in our text. The beginning of it is. But here we begin to see Jesus being rejected from every possible direction. He brings his disciples with him. The men who have followed around for three years and seen the miracles and heard the teaching, gave up everything to follow him. He brings them with him into this garden to pray and they keep falling asleep. And we kind of get it, it's late at night, they just had a big meal, right? And the older I get, the weirder the places that I fall asleep and get tired in. I understand a little bit of the tiredness here. But also, we're beginning to see that the disciples have no idea what's going on. That Jesus, throughout his ministry, has been telling them, I'm going to suffer. Even the night, that night, he took bread and said, my body's going to break like this bread, and this wine that pours freely, that's going to be like my blood. They still don't get it. They're still reacting against it. They still don't see this moment as a really big deal. And so, what happens? The rejection starts. That Jesus' closest friends fall asleep on him. That one of his disciples is about to betray him in the very next verse. That he's going to go get arrested and brought before trial by his own people, a Jewish council, to be crucified. And then after he's arrested, Mark actually says the disciples bail. They're gone. They flee. They're terrified. And then Peter. Peter, Mark's gospel is Peter's gospel. It's Peter's eyewitness accounts written down by Mark. Peter, the one on whose confession the church will be built, Peter denies him three times outright. Utterly alone in this moment. Utterly alone as he goes to the cross. But we all know that's not the main rejection that Jesus faces here. That as he goes to the cross, what he is doing is he is taking our place in being rejected by the Father. That he becomes the one thing he's never known, which is to be God-forsaken. Which is to be the most sinful thing that's ever existed as the wrath of God falls on behalf of him. That when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He hears nothing in return. That he goes to the cross to take my rejection. Why? So that I may be accepted. That he takes our curse so that we can have his blessing. That he takes our identity as sinners, that we may have his identity as sons and daughters. Because you see, in this moment, it's going back to the very beginning of another garden. The Garden of Eden where man rejected God. And in this garden, all of a sudden, we begin to see that God's coming to rescue his people. But Jesus is rejected on the cross for our sins, that he may undo the Garden of Eden for his people. It's actually fascinating if you think about this biblical theology, that there's three gardens in the Bible. There's more than that, but three main gardens in the Bible, the Garden of Eden, the Garden of the Gethsemane, and then the garden in the new heavens, new earth, in the middle of the city, flows a river out of the throne that's lined with trees whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. Where we'll dwell with God forever. And the question comes, how do we get from the Garden of Eden and the rebelliousness of our hearts, the sin that we deserve, the curse that we brought upon ourselves. How do we go from that garden to the garden at the end to dwell with him forever? And it's because Jesus went through this garden. Through this garden to the cross. To the cross through the suffering. To shut the mouth of death. To shut sin over his people to raise again a new life, that in this dark moment, in Jesus's ministry, we know that Easter's coming. That hope comes, even in dark moments like this. Um, Anna, she's in all of my illustrations. My daughter, she's five years old now. Uh, when she was a baby, she was a terrible sleeper, and we were new parents. Most of it was probably our fault. We were afraid to let her cry uh, too much. We Bedtime was this production that took an hour to do, and she would never go to sleep, and so bedtime was really stressful for us, and um, my wife finally figured out how to calm her down. We didn't do this with my son. My poor son doesn't get babied like this, but uh, she would go to the door as my daughter was crying, and she would just start talking. It didn't really matter what she said. Anna couldn't understand the words, but just the sound of her mother's voice calms her down. But she had to say something. And so what she would normally say is this. She would say, Anna, it's time to go to bed now. And I know you don't want to. I know it's dark. I know it's scary. But I'm right here. I'm right outside the door. And in the morning, I'll come get you. And we'll play. Morning's coming. And when she said morning is coming for a second time, her seminary husband was on the couch like absolute tears. Because that's beautiful. That in the midst of darkness, what Christians actually can say is, but morning's coming. That in the midst of Good Friday, I know we're not there yet, I'm sorry I'm skipping ahead, but in the midst of Good Friday, we know that Easter is coming. That in the depth of our long, dark night of the soul, we can look at Jesus' long, dark night in the soul and say, because he went through that for us, morning is coming for his people, or one day, someday, we will dwell with them with no more sin, pain, death, sadness anymore. And God himself, Revelation 21, will wipe our tears from our eyes. Like a father wiping hot tears off his children's face as if to say, all things sad are now untrue. Jesus suffers for his people. And his suffering shows us the love for his bride that he desires to spend eternity with. Do you see the great hope in a suffering savior? A suffering king. That is our hope for salvation. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for today and the holy week. As a church, when we cast our eyes, Jesus, on that week. And what you went through and what you've done that was long proclaimed. But Lord, help us to see the hope of your suffering, of your passion for your people. And may we rest in your work and not our own. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.